Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you the Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, for there they will see me. Then from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Christ all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks and praise for this good news of the gospel, this good news of the resurrection, that Christ is risen, that Christ is risen indeed. 
Father, would you help us to see what good news that is? Would you help us to rejoice in it? Would you help us to understand how vital it is uh, to our lives and to this world? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's a, uh, it's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? I'm sure one that's familiar to most of you. Jesus died on the cross, and then Jesus rose again from the dead. It's an amazing story. Does it matter if it's true? Does it matter if it actually happened? Can it still help us if it's just a story? Uh, you know, statistics show that the, the influence of Christianity in the United States is declining. Uh, if that's true, if, if people in our country are becoming more and more secular and less and less religious, at least in regard to Christianity, do we really want the center of our religion to be the story about a dead man coming back to life? A story that for some people is just too hard to believe. Maybe it's hard for you to believe. So does it matter if it's true or not? Uh, Leo Tolstoy once wrote, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed this way. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? If, if I'm going to die, if we're all going to die anyway, and that's it, does any of it really matter? Does it matter if I've lived a, a good life or a bad life? Does it matter if I've lived a moral life uh, or an immoral life? Does it matter if I've lived a self-centered life or a self-giving life? Does it matter if I've lived a lazy life or a productive life? Does it really matter at the end of the day? If we're all just the product of a random chemical reaction that just kind of happened and we're here by accident, and one day it's all going to fall apart, and we're all going to fall apart into nothingness, does any of it really matter? But what if death isn't the last word? What if we aren't alive by accident? What if life goes on beyond the grave? Resurrection matters. Or to look at it from the vantage point of the Apostle Paul in our text, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most pitied. Resurrection matters. So what we're going to do this morning, probably not surprisingly, is we're going to talk about resurrection, but not just resurrection in general, the resurrection, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What really happened that day? How do we know what happened that day? And at the end of the day, does it really matter whether it happened or not? Well, here's what happened. Uh, we, we are told in the Scriptures that Jesus Christ died. The night before His death, 
Uh, he was up all night. He was interrogated. He was beaten. He was exhausted. Then the next day, he was scourged. Uh, and this would be taking a whip with, with multiple lashes, which had uh, pieces of metal and glass embedded in it, and uh, bone, metal and bone embedded in it, and, and whipping someone with this. Uh, some people died just from this beating. They didn't even make it to the crucifixion. Then Jesus was crucified, a horrible way to die. Uh, after that, men who are no strangers to, to crucifixions, men who you might say were professional executioners, Roman soldiers determined that, yes, indeed, he was dead. Uh, and then to make sure they pierced his side with a spear. After that, Jesus' body was wrapped in uh, over a hundred pounds of linen and spices. Even if he wasn't dead already somehow, this would have suffocated him. Jesus died. There's no doubt about it that Jesus was dead. But then, the New Testament Scriptures tell us that numerous people saw the risen Lord Jesus. That it wasn't just a spirit, but this was actually someone with a physical body. Uh, Mary and Mary Magdalene see the empty tomb where Jesus lay. Then they later see Jesus Himself. The disciples see Jesus. Thomas was not with Jesus. I mean, with the disciples when they first see Jesus. And He says to them, Unless I see in His hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into His side, I will never believe. Eight days later, Jesus appears to Thomas as He is with the disciples and says to him, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas cries out, My Lord and my God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to over 500 of the brothers at once, at one time, many of whom, he says, were still alive at the writing of 1 Corinthians. What happened? The resounding testimony of the Scriptures is that Jesus died, but that Jesus then rose again from the dead. But how do we know? How do we know? You might say at this point, that's a pretty big claim to make, that someone actually rose from the dead. Is there any evidence to back that up? Well, I can't do an extended treatment, but I want to give you five things to think about. Five things to think about. If you have further questions, you can talk to me about it later, but five things just to think about. Uh, first of all, just a note about the Gospels themselves. These uh, four books at the beginning of the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, some people have said that what happened is, is in the early church, Jesus died and they simply made up these stories of His life. That they were trying to gain influence within the Roman Empire. That they were trying to, to gather a group to themselves. And so they made these stories up. But the fact of the matter is that these Gospel accounts were written too soon after the events that they described to simply be legends that the early church created. Uh, at most, the Gospel accounts were written within 50 or 60 years. At most, they were written within 50 or 60 years of Jesus' death. Paul's letters were written within 15 to 25 years of the death of Jesus Christ. 
that means that when these books were written, there were large numbers of eyewitnesses still around who would have seen the events that the apostles and the gospel writers describe. In fact, uh, the writers even go so far, so far as to include details that you could go back and check up on if you were around then. All right, for example, Mark tells us that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why do you include something like that? Why do you include that unless that actually happened? Why do you include that unless you want your first readers to be able to go back and ask Alexander and Rufus? They could go find them and say, is this actually what happened that day? Uh, We read also in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appears to over 500 people at once. Now, some people will say, well, the disciples just hallucinated. They didn't really see the risen Lord Jesus. But a hallucination is a very private experience. Normally, 500 people don't hallucinate the same thing all at one time. Secondly, you don't write something like that 15 years after it happened if it didn't really happen. Uh, imagine if I were to say to you, y'all remember 15 years ago at Wofford when that student died and he rose from the dead and then he appeared to over 500 people at once? Now what would you be able to do? You could walk over to Wofford Monday morning. I'm sure there would be people there, uh, professors there, who were there 15 years ago. You could ask them, did these events actually happen? You don't write something like this unless you really know that it was the case. And you expect people to go back and to check up on you. The New Testament writers expected the early readers to ask questions. They wanted you to check these events out. Another note about the Gospels, uh, the content in them Some people say, again, they're legends the early church made up to accumulate power for themselves and influence. Well, the content's really too counterproductive to work in that way. I mean, think about what they wrote as they're trying to build their movement. Why would you make up the crucifixion when both Jews and Greeks would have thought that anyone who had been crucified was nothing more than a criminal? Why do you make a criminal in their mind, this centerpiece of your movement? Why do you have Jesus in the garden before the crucifixion asking God if there's any other way? Why do you make that up? Why do you have Him on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First first century people who heard this would have thought that Jesus was weak and that He had failed His God. Why do you describe the apostles, the guys who would be the leaders of the early church, as petty and slow, as as infighting and cowardly? Why do you make up Peter denying that he even knows Jesus Christ? Why do you write that down if it didn't actually happen? Uh, Thirdly, as to the resurrection itself, If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why do the disciples remain loyal to him? I mean, remember, they had hoped that Jesus was going to come and lead a revolt, that he was going to throw off the Roman oppressors. 
It didn't happen. He didn't do what they thought he was going to do. But they don't scatter. You would think at this point they would say, well, that didn't work out very well. And they would, would hightail it out of town, but they didn't. They were persecuted. They were even killed for their faith. Their faith in the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you die for that story? Why do you go and get yourself killed for a Jesus who didn't do what you expected Him to do unless He did something more amazing than what you expected Him to do? Uh, Fourthly, why did worship change? Maybe you haven't thought about this before. But why did Jewish people who had been worshiping on Saturday for thousands of years, and it was a big deal, why did they all of a sudden decide, I think we should worship on Sunday? Why would they willingly change their day of worship? Why did Jewish people who thought it was a sin to worship any other God other than the one true God suddenly change and start worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ as God in the flesh? unless he had actually risen from the dead. Now there's one last thing I'd ask you to consider, and it's it's in our text in verse 7. Paul writes, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. Uh, The last bit of evidence I would offer to you is simply a man named Paul. A man named Paul. Paul was a a Jewish Pharisee. And if you remember, these are the religious people that Jesus was always calling out. And they hated Him. Uh, Paul, in fact, made it his life's mission to destroy the early church. He wanted to see Christianity wiped from the face of the earth. And yet the book of Acts tells us that Paul encounters the risen Lord Jesus himself and is converted to Christianity. Paul hated Jesus. Paul hated Christianity. Why does he, of all people, become the chief missionary of the early church? Why does a good portion of the New Testament bear his signature? This would be like Osama bin Laden uh, becoming uh, a fan of George W. Bush and signing up for the U.S. Air Force. Or deciding he wants to work for the State Department and he wants to be stationed in Afghanistan handing out United States propaganda because he loves it so much. Becomes a flag-waving American. What? How, How would that happen? How could that happen? How does this happen to Paul? If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And let me add, it's not just Paul that's been changed. Many of us, many of you, have been changed. And you can give testimony to to the amazing grace of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in your life. That things have changed in your life that there is no explanation for other than the fact that Jesus is risen and Jesus is Lord and Jesus has changed you. Well, Uh, Maybe that will give you a little bit to think about, perhaps encourage your faith, perhaps challenge you to think a little bit about the resurrection. But there's one last question I want to deal with here. Why does it matter? Why does it matter so much whether this actually happened 
or not. Uh, well, let me give you two or three reasons here. The first is this. The message of the resurrection is part of the core of the gospel message. Look, look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. All right, now I go down to verse 3, and he's going to lay out what this gospel is. For I deliver to you as of first importance what's, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Christ died for our sins. This is the Gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ appeared to, to all sorts of people. In the minds of the early church, and as you look at their preaching, the, the Gospel was not just Jesus died for you. The Gospel was Jesus died for our sins and Jesus is risen from the dead. You know, in some ways, that is the good news that we have to offer to the world. We don't serve a dead Savior who is unable to overcome death. We serve a living Savior who overcame death, who destroyed death. Jesus slammed death to the ground and kicked it in the head. He was triumphant over the grave. He was victorious. The good news, the Gospel wouldn't be good news if there was no resurrection. Uh, secondly, uh, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we read this, verse 14 and 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. I was having a conversation with somebody this past week and we didn't have very long to talk. There, there were multiple people at the table and they were kind of asking questions about the reliability. How, how could we really... Uh, trust the Bible. Uh, and I wanted to give him something to think about. And I said, look, if Jesus rose from the dead, you should take what he says about the Bible seriously. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you can just blow it all off. It's, it, it's, it's, it's completely useless to us. And I'm wasting my life, and, and none of it matters anyway. And the person looked at me and said, well, you're still a good person. <laughs> I said, well, you don't really know me. Um, but but, but uh, it, it is. It's just a waste if it didn't happen. If Jesus didn't rise, then the entire testimony of the early church is a lie. If Jesus didn't rise, then Christianity crumbles to the ground. It's all in vain. It's all useless. A third reason it matters, verse 17 if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, back in verse 3, Paul says, Christ died for our sins. All right, we saw this last week as we talked about what happened at the cross. That the way salvation works is that Jesus Christ serves as a substitute for those who put their faith in Him. That He receives at the cross the punishment that they deserve. We deserve to die, but Jesus goes to the cross for us, in our stead, in our place. He dies for our sins so that we don't have to die for our sins. 
That's the heart of the gospel. But do you hear what Paul's saying now? If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, then the cross actually accomplished nothing. In Romans 1, Paul talks about Jesus being declared the Son of God in power by His resurrection of the dead. In Romans 4.25, we're told that Jesus was delivered over for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. Now, this is going to sound like a little bit of a rabbit trail to you, but it's not. What's going on in justification? What happens in justification? When a judge justifies one, justifies someone, what's he doing? He's declaring that person to be in right standing in his court. When God justifies us, what's he doing? He's declaring us to be in right standing in his court. Uh, I'm a sinner. God is perfectly holy. How can he declare me to be in right standing in his court? How can he declare me righteous? We're back to that substitute thing. It's only as Jesus stands in for me. As Jesus takes the punishment I deserve, as Jesus lives the life, the perfect life that I should have lived but didn't, as Jesus is my substitute, Jesus dies for me, Jesus lives for me, Jesus stands in for me, and Jesus offers His perfect record to the Father on my behalf. And He says, Justin, you don't have to give Him your record anymore. I'm going to give him mine for you. How do I know the Father accepts that? How do I know He's okay with that? Because He raised Jesus from the dead. Because He raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection shows that Jesus is who He said He is and He has accomplished what He set out to accomplish. Or, or think about it like this. If Jesus is my representative before God, and if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, that means that His sacrifice was not accepted by God. That, that God looked at the work of Jesus and He rejected it. And He said, you are not righteous. I do not declare you righteous, Jesus. And if Jesus wasn't declared righteous, then I can't be declared righteous. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, if he was declared to be righteous, if he was declared to be in right standing in God's court, then by faith in him, I can be declared righteous as well. By faith in him, I can be accepted by the Father. But no resurrection, no right standing with God. No resurrection, no justification. No resurrection, you're still in your sins. Why does the resurrection matter? Well, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. Verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If, there no, if there's no resurrection, again, we really are wasting our time. If there is no resurrection, then the church is really just this weird social club. Alright? It's a very odd one at that. 
All the funerals for loved ones where we say, well, they're in a better place now. That's all just a bunch of garbage that we tell each other if the resurrection is not true. Now, you might say at this point, you know what, I've got no problem with that. We get our time, we make the best of it, it goes well for some of us, it doesn't go so well for the rest of us, but that's just the way life is. I'm fine with no, with there being no resurrection. I like to push you a little bit on that and say, say to you, you say you believe that, but if you really believe that, why do you care about other people? Why do you say you want to see the world be a better place? Why do you volunteer with nonprofits? Why do you serve other people? Why do you care if you succeed? What does it matter if you make something out of your life or not? Why aren't you in an existential crisis like Leo Tolstoy if you say you're fine with there being no resurrection? Uh, Bertrand Russell, a philosopher, said this, and this is going to be the depressing quote of the morning. Uh, that man is the product. That man is the product of causes which have no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Bertrand Russell was not happy, happy, happy. But, but, he was consistent. He was consistent. My challenge to you this morning is, if you say, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe in the resurrection, my challenge to you is this, okay, why don't you actually start living like you don't believe the Bible? Why don't you actually start living like you don't believe the Bible? Quit propping your life up with the Christian worldview that you say that you deny and start living like you really don't believe the Bible. Or... You can ask yourself, why do I continue to follow this worldview that if I'm consistent with it, it leads to nothing but despair and everything I do is meaningless? Why am I clinging to that? Why can't I at least consider this worldview, this Christian worldview that offers hope and meaning and life and joy and purpose, this worldview that changes everything? Why am I not at least willing to consider that for a moment? As Tim Keller likes to say, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, you ought to want it to be true. Because it's the only hope that you have. And the good news of Easter, Paul tells us, is that it is true. The resurrection is true. 
Look at, listen to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Uh, my family watched the movie Holes this weekend. Has anybody seen the movie Holes? Are you serious? Okay. <laughs> Nobody's going to raise their hand on that. All right. Holes is this, this old Disney movie. I think it's a Disney movie about kids on a prison farm digging holes in the desert for no apparent reason. All right. That's, that's all the plot I'm going to tell you. Okay. You just have to go watch and figure out why they're doing this. Um, but early in the movie... Uh, one of the characters is given some advice by a fortune teller. And the fortune teller tells him, after you do what I tell you to do, I want you to do one thing before you leave and go to America. I want you to come back and I want you to carry me to the top of this mountain. And the guy does all this stuff and then he forgets to take the fortune teller. I'm not going to tell you, just trust me, he had to carry it to the top of the mountain. So he forgets to carry it to the top of the mountain. And he goes to America. And the result is there's this curse on his family for generations. They have nothing but bad luck. On and on and on and on. Until finally, on this prison farm, uh, the great-great-great-grandson of the, the guy who forgot to carry the fortune teller and the great-great-great-grandson of the fortune teller happen to meet each other. And they're both running away. And the great-grandson of the fortune teller is dying of thirst. And the only place where there's water, the only place where there's going to be relief is at the top of this mountain. And the grandson of the guy who had screwed everything up, he has to carry the grandson of the fortune teller to the top of the mountain. And when he does, and when he gets water there, the curse is lifted. See, there's the first guy who didn't do what he was supposed to do, and he messed everything up. But then there was the descendant of the first guy who came along, and he did what the first guy failed to do. He accomplished what the first man didn't. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That Adam, our father, failed. That he disobeyed God. And he brought us all under God's wrath and curse. But the descendant of Adam, Jesus Christ, came and he did what Adam failed to do. He obeyed God perfectly. And not only did he do what Adam failed to do, he suffered the consequences of what Adam had done and what all of us have done as well. Paul is saying our first representative failed us, and in him, in Adam, we all die. But there's a new representative, a new representative in Jesus Christ who has done what Adam failed to do, and the reward for his obedience, obedience even to the point of death on the cross, is resurrection. And everyone who is connected to this Jesus Christ will be resurrected as well. Death comes through Adam. Resurrection comes through Jesus Christ. And what the Scriptures tell us is that every one of us, we are all connected to Adam as our representative by birth. And the only way that we can be delivered from death is that if we become connected to our new representative, if we become connected to the risen Lord Jesus Christ by faith. We have to be 
connected to Jesus by faith. What does that look like? It looks like us believing the gospel. Look at verse 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. What was the gospel? Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus was died. Jesus was buried. Jesus was risen. Uh, Jesus has appeared. This good news of the gospel. He died for our sins. I remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Believe the gospel. To believe the gospel is how we're connected to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. To believe this good news that He is He has died, but He is risen, so that our sins will be forgiven. Believe the gospel and hold fast to the gospel, Paul says, and you will have eternal resurrection life. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, resurrection life is offered to you. If you will simply receive it, if you'll simply believe this good news. If you are a believer, this really is a day of rejoicing. Every day uh, is a day of rejoicing. Because what this day tells us is that death doesn't have the final word. No matter how messed up your life might be right now, no matter how death is affecting you right now, maybe that's through physical suffering or mental suffering or struggling with your own sin or maybe just having a generally hard life. No matter how death is affecting you right now, one day you will be yanked out of this dying world to new and glorious resurrection life. That's the good news. That's the the certain hope of Easter. And you should rejoice as well that your sin, the sin that you feel so much guilt and shame over, it doesn't have the last word either. Because Jesus has died for that sin. And Jesus has risen. And the Father has accepted Him as righteous. And if you are connected to Him by faith, you will be accepted as righteous as well. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that this world does have meaning, that death does not have the final say, that our sin does not have the final say, that Jesus has died, but that Jesus has risen and our sins are forgiven. God, would you help us to believe that good news? Would you help us to live like we believe that good news? And would you cause us to rejoice in it so much that others ask us uh, to give a reason for the hope that we have within us and help us to be quick and ready to proclaim that Jesus is alive and because of that I am too. Work this in us, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.